So I, I get asked to teach a lot of um, entrepreneurship classes, doing guest lectures, and I go in and there's, I tell the story about founding my business and all of that. And there's always someone at by the end that asks me a question, something along the lines of, how long did it take you to write your business plan? And then there's always the question of what would you do if you failed? And this is an entrepreneurship class. So I would turn around and I said, well, you want to be an entrepreneur. Let me ask you. You've got a plan. What will you do if you fail? And the answer is always something like, well, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I guess I would just go back into another cubicle job until I could figure out another plan and then go, go do that. And I said, great. Okay. Now you've figured out the plan if you fail. What are you going to do if you succeed? And then it's crickets, right? Like they don't know, they haven't thought about if I am able to achieve these metrics of success or those metrics of success, and that opens these different doors for me, what might that mean in terms of what I can grow and what I can build? They're so busy going, well, it might fail, and not just saying, okay, if it fails and this is the Mm -hmm. plan, great, let's pack that away, and now let's spend all of my energy on building success that they never actually move forward. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's guest is delightful, Laura Gassner Otting, who is the author of Limitless. Now, Laura really came through a lot of opportunities. She transformed the executive search business and now really is traveling the world. She has a very famous TEDx talk as well. She can be found at Hey, it's called Hey LGO, which is really an acronym for her name. And we'll have that in the show notes there for you. But really what we talk about is to not follow what everybody else wants in your life. And Laura shares some insights and wisdom about that and why you know some individuals are successful and others are not. She in fact uses the statement, screw the Joneses. So as a sidebar, you know, CRG sponsors this show, Secrets of Success, and as a publisher of tools and resources, we just want to encourage you that, you know, if you want to go to the next level, we have a holistic assessment system. So we have 10 tools. So sometimes a little difficult to communicate just all the diversity that's there and available for you as part of it. But if we want to develop our car or fix our car, we want to fix the whole thing. It's not just the wheels, it's the engine, it's it's everything. And the same thing is what we believe is developing a high level of self-awareness. So the focus for today is Think about thequestforpurpose.ca. That's my book on helping to get clear about where you want to go in your life, uh, what's important, uh, your interests, your gifts, your talents. I give you a roadmap so that you can take yourself to the next level and only you can know what's important to you, not from a self-centered point of view, but from a self-honoring point of view. So join me for this podcast with Laura, who is a delightful guest, and here she is. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, each week, I have the pleasure of interviewing amazing individuals, and today is no exception to that. Laura Gasner Odding. Now, did I say that right? You sure did. Okay. Laura is the author of Limitless, and we'll get into her book and all the elements there. She's a TEDx speaker as well. Just amazing. So she has some really powerful processes for us to talk about, you know, breaking the limits, breaking the barriers and going to the next level. So Laura, welcome to the show. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Ken. I'm so happy to be here. Well, already, we are, were talking offline before we started and I already like you a lot. So um, from that, that always is positive. So, you know, Laura, as when we, when we think about this, the SOS audience, what we want to do is just spend a moment or two and just say, you know, who's Laura? Where did Laura grow up? What were some of her background before we get into the accolades of everything that your success in life? So Uh, what's your story? What's my story? Well, I grew up in Miami, Florida um, in the 80s. I was born in New York City and and grew up in Miami. And it was a really fascinating time to grow up there because if you've ever seen, you know, the movie Scarface or the TV show Miami Vice, I joke around that that wasn't really fiction. It was kind of a, it was kind of documentary. (laughs) It was, it was, it was a, my, I went to a high school that was uh, one third Latino, one third African-American, one third white. And even within the Latinos, there were, Venezuelans and Colombians and Cubans and Puerto Ricans mm. and Dominicans. And so it was just kind of like a big, giant, hot mess. And everybody was just living their life and being themselves. And it was just a great, I don't know that I necessarily got a great education in the public school I went to uh, from the books, but I sure learned a lot about how people are individual and special. Mm. And so when you say people are individual or special, what does that mean to us? What does that just, mean to you know, you? I mean, every every time I would go to somebody's house after school, you would, you know, their mother would be cooking a different dish. You know, they're either making chicken and rice, or they're making steak, or they're making, um, uh, you know, frijoles, or you know, they're making some thing from their own culture. And I just, it never seemed to me that different was different. It was just unique. And mm. I then, you know, I look back on, you know, we we look, we can all look at a, a career of of whatever various accolades and say, oh, okay, there was a there was a pathway and there was a strategy and it was well executed. It all made Makes sense. That's what I plan to do. Now I could do that. I could come up with a story, but it wouldn't really be true. Mm-hmm. Right? But Fair I can enough. now look backwards and, you know, Robin Robertson from Good Morning, Good Morning America likes to say that success leaves clues. And I firmly believe that that's true. I can look back and I can look at all the clues that I see along the way and I can see that path. But I really do think that a career of 20 years doing executive search for, um, for, for nonprofit uh, and mission-driven organizations started with this childhood of seeing everybody as individual and everybody as having their own stories and knowing that it's in the stories that we get to know each other and that we find our greatness. Ah, hence podcasts and storytelling and getting to know Laura today. So thank you for that. Now, Laura, when we think about your family background, your parents, what did they do? What was sort of their um, professions and what were they sort of teaching you as you were growing up? So my father was a physician. Uh, He grew up um, he grew, my father grew up, uh, with not a lot of means. He shared a one bedroom uh, apartment with his parents and his brother. He lived on a pull-up sofa with the brother until he was old enough to, um, to, to move out when he married my mom. So grew up, you know, in Brighton beach, Brooklyn with not a lot of means and would always walk down to the water and look at the boats, uh, in the Harbor and say, I'm going to have one of those one day. Right. So he mm-hmm. always had big dreams. And in his mind, the way to get there, you know, he's interested in science and medicine. Is his his mind the way to do that was was to become a physician. Uh, and he used to tell a story about the day that he 
graduated from his medical residency, he like did the calculations based on how much, how long he'd think he'd live and how much money he wanted to have and the, 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 the price of, um, uh, you know, cost of living increases in inflation and, and how much money he would need. And he would count how many days he would think he would have to work in order to get from here to there. And he did it. And, and he was mm. very successful. And, and years later actually brought his boat all the way up um, the intercoastal waterway to that same harbor and, 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 and sailed around. And it's a nice full circle moment. My mother had trained, my mother has a master's degree in science and had trained to be a teacher and actually had been a teacher for several years until my sister and I were born. And she, um, she, she was home with us for um, several years and then ran my father's medical office building. But my mother, I get a lot of my personality traits from my mother and uh, she is the kind of person who does things because she can't not do them. You know, mm. like she just, she sees a, she sees a problem and once she understands the solution to it, can't live with the problem any longer. And so, um, she, you know, ran our, our local homeowners association and then was frustrated by the way the city in Miami was, was, was handling some of the situation. And then she ended up running for city council and she was a city council person in North Miami, uh, for a few terms while I was in junior high and high school. And so we, my parents were, you know, in helping professions, they were active. My mom was an active. Um, they were community oriented and um, and and still are uh, to this day. Wow. Now, what was the motivation to move from New York down to Florida for your parents? Well, we, there was actually a stop uh, between New York City and Miami, and that was Cape Canaveral. Well, I guess it's Cape Kennedy now, but at the time it was Cape Canaveral. My father was in the Air Force because that's it was the Vietnam War era and people mm. were, were drafted. So he was in the Air Force and he actually we lived on Cape Canaveral from the time I was about a year and a half until I was three years old. And he was one of the physicians to the, um, all the astronauts that were in the space, uh, that were in the, uh, the space program. And after a year and a half, cool. I can't were, say I've ever interviewed somebody, sorry to interrupt, that's had that background. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting background. He actually, um, uh, he, I remember him telling me a story once that there was a manual that existed, which had all of the letters that would go out to the family should something bad happen, right? Should there be an explosion? Should there be a fire? Should there be a death? Um, and all of the all of the situations were already accounted for. So any possible scenario that could happen, they'd already done the thinking. They'd already written the language. So it's sort of like how newspapers today walk around with obituaries for every famous person that they constantly update because they want to make sure that they're ready to go at a moment's notice. And so I think there are like these little kernels. It's funny that you start the interview this way because in 20 years of doing executive search, it's how I started all of my interviews. I got to know the people by learning about the influences they had. And so I can mm. now look at the things that I do and the successes that I've had and how I've managed failures because I've always had that same little manual. No matter what it was doing, no matter what I was going to start, I always thought, okay, let me plan for all the potential failure scenarios and have it out of the way, get the manual done, have all of those decisions made so that now I can actually focus on the success and spend all of my energy there. Wow. You know, Laura, I've been in this space. This is my 30th year, and our company's been around for 40. I don't know if I've met many people that have the manual pre-done. I, I don't think many do either, and here's the problem with that. 
We don't have the manual pre-done, but we spend a ton of time worrying about it anyway. So I get asked to teach a lot of um, entrepreneurship classes, doing guest lectures, and I go in and there's, I tell the story about founding my business and all of that. And there's always someone at by the end that asks me a question, something along the lines of, how long did it take you to write your business plan? And then there's always the question of what would you do if you failed? And this is an entrepreneurship class. So I would turn around and I said, well, you want to be an entrepreneur. Let me ask you. You've got a plan. What will you do if you fail? And the answer is always something like, well, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I guess I would just go back into another cubicle job until I could figure out another plan and then go, go do that. And I said, great. Okay. Now you've figured out the plan if you fail. What are you going to do if you succeed? And then it's crickets, right? Like they don't know, they haven't thought about if I am able to achieve these metrics of success or those metrics of success, and that opens these different doors for me, what might that mean in terms of what I can grow and what I can build? They're so busy going, well, it might fail and not just saying, okay, if it fails and this is the Mm -hmm. plan, great, let's pack that away. And now let's spend all of my energy on building success that they never actually move forward. Right. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thanks, Laura, for that. I appreciate that. And I'm sure the listeners do, too. So let's just back up for a second. You've you've got this family, this heritage of really two parents who are ambitious, but also caring. Where did you go for university? I went to University of Texas at Austin. Really? And and why that university? Because it was warm. <laughs> well, Florida's warm. <laughs> you, you think I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, get it. I get it. Yeah. So, so Florida, Florida's warm too, right? Florida's warm too, but I wanted to get out of Florida. I was ready to go. Um, I had, I, I, I was, I was that obnoxious senior in high school who just knew she wanted to be somewhere else already. Like I'd moved on. I had the case. I had a case of the senioritis, like nobody's business. I was just ready to be gone. And, um, and so I applied to university of Florida as a safety school, you know, got to get in somewhere like, let's make sure. But then I also like, I, you know, I grew up as the son, my father, I was the second of two daughters. I grew up as the son, my father never had. And, you know, we went fishing and, you know, football games and all that stuff. And I loved football. I loved college football. And I thought I wanted to study journalism or politics. And so I looked for a school. I wanted to go somewhere where people heard of it. I wanted to go to a big school with a big football team and good journalism and politics and one that I could get into. And that, that, that diagram included university of Texas. And so I ended up at university of Texas and I will tell you, it was like culture shock for me, right? This like Jewish girl growing up in Miami beach, going to Texas was uh, crazy. I, the very first week I got um, asked out by an upperclassman, you know, the upperclassmen like hang out by the, by the dorms and the, when the freshmen move in and help them move in and, you know, check out who's there. And this guy asked me out uh, on a date and that Friday night was a football game and a, and a fraternity party. And so he shows up in my dorm room on, on Friday evening and I open the door and I'm wearing, you know, a pair of shorts and a University of Texas t-shirt. And he just is like, oh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll wait for you to get ready. And I was like, what are you talking about? I am ready. And then I look out into the hallway and there's all these like Southern girls with blonde, big blonde curly hair walking around in these dresses that look like Laura Ashley threw up all over them. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I don't understand. 
and they wear dresses. Like they get dressed up to go to football games. It was the strangest thing in the world to me. But, you know, again, I grew up in Miami where everybody's got their own culture and everyone's got their own thing. So I was like, oh, well, okay, let's explore this for a little while. And so I bought a wardrobe full of flower dresses, which, you know, anybody who knows me now would think is probably the most. Yeah, of course, you still ever. own them and you just look at them periodically. Yeah, I don't. I don't own any of them any, <laughs> anymore. Um, although I think that I think that a lot of us have grandmothers whose whose curtains probably resemble them. So they still live. They still live in memory. Yeah, they are somewhere out there. Okay, well, I'm glad social now, media didn't up? exist back then. So, of course. What did you end up graduating with then? What did you? Well, so I actually ended up graduating with a political science degree and, um, interestingly, a, a minor in art history. Okay, interesting. Totally useless. I just thought it was. I thought art history was interesting. Well, there you go. And well, we all have our interests, and you're an individual, so you're allowed that, are you not? There you go. Okay, perfect. So you finished that. Now you have the distinction of being connected to the Clintons in being assigned or an appointee through Bill. I met Bill just a few years ago, actually, in Dallas, personally. So uh, how, tell us the story about how that happened. Oh, well, so I graduated from college in December um, of, uh, of, of my senior year. I, I, I had skipped kindergarten. I uh, took a lot of AP classes in high school. At University of Texas, as soon as you get 120 credits, they don't let you register again. And so I, I tried to take four classes a, a, a semester and try to go as slow as I possibly could, but I, I graduated early. And I graduated on December 19th, and then I started law school at the University of Florida on January 3rd. At that point, I thought I wanted to run for office. I thought I was going to be the first female United States senator from the great state of Florida. P.S. That job is still available. There has not yet been one. Um, mm. So it may not be too late. Well, the opening is um, still there for you. You're not the done The opening yet. is still there for me. Um, I, but uh, so, so there I was. I was 20 years old on January 3rd, sitting in that law school class, looking around, going, I've made a huge mistake. I don't want to be a lawyer. This is terrible. And so I did what most uh, unhappy, self-destructive young people do is I dated somebody who was totally wrong for me. And uh, I dated a guy who was in that class and uh, it was raining one day and I used to ride my bike to campus and he said, well, I'll give you a ride home. We'll stick your bike in the back of my IROC Z. (laughs) You can picture this guy. I I remember that car. Yeah, yeah, I was not wearing flower dresses at this point anymore. So, you know, he, but yes, that he put his, my, my bike in the back of his IROC Z. We, um, you know, turned up the Leonard Skinnerd and we drove to uh, the strip mall in Gainesville, Florida, where uh, this was, was the local campaign office for this guy who's running for president. And I, the whole way, was like, Governor Who, from where? Arkansas? Not a chance, right? George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. And this Yahoo from Arkansas is going to win? Please. Nobody thought that was going to happen. But this is back before the Internet. So in order to get information about somebody running for president, you had to literally go to their local campaign office. So we walk into this local campaign office, which is this you know, tiny strip mall storefront. And in the corner is this tiny black and white TV with then Governor Bill Clinton giving this impassioned speech with the idea that there is nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he presented as a policy proposal national service. 
college, uh, co- uh, community service in exchange for college tuition. And I said, yes, that needs to happen. And I started volunteering on the campaign. And three weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hillary and Alan Tipper Gore, came through this tiny town of Gainesville, Florida. And we got 36,000 people to show up at that rally. And the national office said, who are those volunteers? We need to get them on staff. And I got offered a great job to do political advance and travel all over the southeast of the country throwing rallies in tiny towns whose names I will never remember for people whose faces I will never forget. And I got paid all the idealism I could eat and a bunch of cold pizza. (laughs) And uh, a few months later, he wins. And I put my car in the auto train and head up to Washington, D.C. and hope for the best. And I started volunteering um, on the transition. And along the way, I'd met uh, a friend who ran the um, volunteer program at the White House. And he called me up on day one and said, we need a volunteer. Come on in. And I started volunteering. And I, I got to know the right people. I did work that got noticed. And... There I was. I became a political appointee in Bill Clinton's first administration, helping create AmeriCorps, the national service program in which a million young people have served. Wow. Wow. So volunteered. So how did you eat? How did you live when you were just volunteering all that time? Well, so, you know, um, I had some savings. Um, I, uh, you know, odd jobs, right? Like you got to figure out how to do it. Um, my parents in their infinite, uh, flexibility, the one time in their entire parenting career that they showed flexibility, uh, they said, we'll give you six months. If you can't find a paid job in six months, you're going to come back and finish law school, which I didn't want. So I was incentivized. Mm -hmm. Um, they gave me rent for six months. And at the time rent was like $250 a month. Um, and, you know, you, 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 there's a lot of cold pizza that gets handed to people volunteering in political events. You, there's a lot of wine and cheese parties. And, you know, mm-hmm. you just you sort of go to these events and you, you sort of you show up early. You get a giant plate of cheese. You stand in the corner, you eat it, and then you try to meet people who are going to help you out. So I ate a lot of cheese. <laughs> and Laura's leave, leaving the site with this bag full of something and not sure what it was. And it was just cold pizza. Yeah, I there there are you know uh, all the times you go to events and you know you see young people that they're eating like they're 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 that's their substance mm-hmm. <laughs> figuring it out. But you know what's interesting is that the way that I went from being the way that I went from being a uh, a, a volunteer to a paid employee is that I uh, I actually bled for the job. Explain. Yeah, so um, so I'm volunteering in the Office of National Service, and I'm doing data entry, and I'm walking out of the door one day, and there's a sign. I've been doing it for like four months at this point, and there's a sign on the wall for uh, a blood drive, and I notice that each of the blood drive times have four slots, right? There's four cots you can be on. And there was a time at 10.15 that had two people and Eli Siegel, and then a blank spot. And Eli Siegel was the guy who ran the office, right? He ran the 1992 presidential campaign. He was like a really big deal. He could have had any job he wanted after Bill won. Uh, he could have been the ambassador to France, any cushy job he wanted, but he wanted to run, he wanted to create national service. He was, he was really big on the idea of, of service. Um, so I signed my name up uh, next to his, thinking I'll literally have a captured audience <laughs> to be able to plead my case. Um, now, the funny 
thing about the story is that I have this very um, non-exciting, non-fatal, non-communicative, uh, communicative, um, uh, or communicable uh, thing called vasovagosyncope, which means I tend to pass out when I'm dehydrated or, you know, mm-hmm. give blood. So, so I'm on the table next to him, vein in my, you know, needle in my vein, needle in his vein, and we're told to squeeze that little red ball so that we bleed faster. And I'm like, not really squeezing it at all, hoping that if I bleed slower than him, he'll finish before me so that when he leaves, I can get up and pass out. <laughs> and while we're there, uh, he's asking me my life story and I'm telling him why I'm there and why I'm interested and why national service and all of this stuff. And he says to me, you know, I've got this really interesting question. Maybe you could help answer it. And the question was, can you tell me why the Peace Corps was a success from before John Kennedy even announced it, and the war on poverty was a failure before Lyndon Johnson even got it, you know, even, even signed the paperwork. I'd like to know that, because we should know about that while we're trying to, you know, create this thing. You know, small question. Right? Yeah, no, no, uh, no implications or depth to that one at all. No pressure at all. And I'm like, okay, yes, sir. He finishes bleeding. I'm still, you know, dripping as slowly as possible. Um, you know, I don't really drink coffee and I drank a lot of caffeine that morning so I could, you know, bleed slowly. It's supposed to slow your blood. I did everything I could possibly do to bleed slower. He gets up, he leaves. I finally finish bleeding. I get up, I pass out. I finally come back too. And then I head to the Library of Congress to go research this question. And in doing this report and showing him that I had depth and knowledge and, and, um, and gravity and hunger, he offered me a paid position on staff. And that's, I literally bled for the job. Wow. Don't you love that story? Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. You know, sometimes, sometimes opportunity presents itself and you just have to say yes. And you talk about strategic. I, yeah. I mean, look, are you kidding? I, there, there, there are, there are things that I would say yes to, and there are definitely things I would not say yes to, but this was this golden opportunity. I was like, wait, I can have 15 minutes of one-on-one time with a person who's going to make a decision about really something that's going to affect the rest of my life. And in the process, I can actually do a good deed and give blood and like everything about it was perfect. And I can't believe I'd like, I, I don't know why no one else had signed up for that time. It was sort of, I think, mm-hmm. I think that people don't necessarily always do the hard thing that gets them further along because it's just, it's hard. And I think there'll be other opportunities that are easier. And I've just never shied away from doing the thing that's hard because I know what I want is worth it. Well, those of us that have been entrepreneurs, we or are entrepreneurs, we know that's part. That's part of the deal. Is there's there's effort, there's work that's done that many people don't see the dedication you have behind the scenes that went into it. Now, Laura, and I'm not sure if I really want to go down this path, but I'm going to ask the question anyways. And that is, have you ever thought about if you didn't have that slot, what would have happened? <laughs> That's usually not the question I get when people say, I'm not sure if I want to ask this question about my time in the world. Well, if you think about the, the, the sequence of events in your life, one single event that you connected with him basically has seeded that job. That job might not have happened otherwise. I mean, look, I would have, I would have, 
followed him out of the office and taken the elevator downstairs with him. I would have volunteered to go take a walk with him four blocks from the old executive office building to, you know, the law firm that he needed to go Mm -hmm. sign some paperwork. I mean, I would have made myself available to be there. Like, I know that it's not the it's not the FaceTime in the office. It's all the times in between where the relationships are formed. So I would have figured out a way to make myself present in a way that I could have a conversation with him. And that's one of the things that I tell young people all the time now. Like if you have, if you're, if you're friends with somebody who you admire on social media and you see they're going to be an event, reach out to them and ask them if they can bring a young person along, tell tell them you'll meet them at their office and then go with them to the event so that you don't have to stand at the event with them because obviously they're going to that event because they have an agenda also, but you can have the time in between. Make yourself available in the commutes and the in-betweens. I have people now, I had a young woman who wanted to get some career advice from me uh, a couple weeks ago and she wanted to meet for coffee. And I've decided I, I, don't, I actually don't meet people to eat and drink anymore when they want something from me because I just waste a lot of time and I get fat. So I mm. no longer just sit with people face to face and have them, you know, I, I don't give them that time. And I said, you know, listen, I run the Harvard Stadium stairs every Saturday at 7 a.m. If you want to join me any Saturday, you're welcome to. So she joined me this past Saturday and I dragged her up 37 sections of stairs. But it wasn't that. I mean, I talked the whole time. I was giving her advice, so you know she could you know gasp and 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 have a tough time at it, and, and it didn't matter because I, she was asking me. So like, I knew I could handle talking on the stairs. So I have people meet me where it's convenient for me, and I tell people, mm-hmm. you know, if you want if you want to get in front of somebody, if you want that FaceTime, get to a place where it's convenient for them, and get to them in the in betweens that they have. But you know, had had I not had that moment. It's completely possible that I might not have gotten hired. I might not have gotten a paying job. I might have gone back to law school. I might have finished it. I might have proceeded to have a career in the in the in the um, in the DA's office. I would have made a name for myself and my great giant deeds. I would have gotten recruited. I would have run. I would have become a senator from Florida, or not. I might have married somebody and been a stay-at-home mom. Who knows? I there are plethora paths that are available to us. And I think we never know which one is which. And I think we have an idea that success is the end of the line that we're currently looking at. But it's, I think every time we walk into a room, there's more doors in that room and any one of those doors could be interesting to us. And so staying at home and raising kids might've been interesting. Becoming a Senator might've been interesting. Maybe I would have started my own business earlier. That Mm -hmm. might've been interesting. Who knows? But success it changes as we change and with every possible input. So I don't know that I would have looked back and my life wouldn't have been successful. It just would have been successful in a different way. Fair enough. And well, already in this 30 minutes of getting to know you, Laura, I, I would have concur. I would concur with that observation. Those individuals who are out there, they're just out there and those things get done, they happen, they occur. So I, we have about 15 minutes left in our show, Laura. So I want to move in transition because your, your story is fascinating and I love it. And I'm sure the listeners are enjoying it as well. But let's kind of skip into this whole area of limitless. And so what has been really your professional life the last uh, decade, decade or two? What, what have you been primarily doing? You said you were doing executive searches for a while. Where did that come into the mix here? Well, so when you are 21 years old working in the White House and um, four years go by and you want to get back on the campaign trail and do something exciting, um, you have a conversation with your mentor. In this case, it was Eli Siegel, right? the man I talked about earlier. 
And he told me that I was too old to get back on the campaign bus and eat cold pizza and too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So I should go talk to his friend, Arnie Miller, who runs Isaacson Miller, one of the biggest search firms in the country that does specifically nonprofit work, hide out in a nonprofit for about four years and then come back and do something big and meaty on the Gore campaign. And I said, great, that sounds terrific. And then I talked to Arnie. And at that point, I was dating the guy I should have been dating, um, who has since become my husband of the last 21 years. Uh, and he was going to be moving to Boston. And I sat down with Arnie, and within five minutes, I was like, so you're, you work out of Boston, huh? That's interesting. Maybe I should work for you. And he said, you should come work for me. I'll teach you everything you know about leadership. And I said, great, so I'll take the job. What do you do? <laughs> and I became a headhunter because what do you do when you are young and idealistic and have a Rolodex that can choke a horse, but no real ostensible skills, you go into recruiting. And so mm. I went to go work for Arnie and I spent four years as an executive recruiter, uh, learning from the best and the brightest how to do this work. And then I realized one day that the work was kind of a strange business model and one that didn't really make sense for me. It didn't comport with my definition of success. I wanted to change the world and make you know these organizations use talent as a lever to make the world a better place. And the way that this giant business was set up was that it really had to be profits first, client mission second. And that didn't comport with me. And so I marched into his office one day and I said, you know, I've discovered uh, that we are not part of the solution and here's why. And that means that we're part of the problem. And I think we should change how we approach the work. And he said, that's great. Uh, you can do that, but you can't do that here. So either you can stay here and do it my way or you can leave and do it your way. So I left and I did it my way and I created my own firm and I ran that for 15 years, really upending the way that executive search this first year's cash compensation traditional model was done and ran that firm for 15 years until I sold it to the team of women who helped me build it. And then I got asked to do this TEDx talk. And I was also in the middle of helping raise a lot of money for Hillary's campaign. And that TEDx talk got a lot of attention. Hillary didn't win. I didn't become the head of White House personnel. Uh, and I started getting asked to speak places more and more and more, and people were offering me money to do it. And I went, wow, this is a job? <laughs> you could do this as a job? And so um, yes, it I, is. it's crazy. <laughs> and so I spent the last three years traveling around the world, speaking to companies and colleges and conferences about success and leadership and confidence. And out of that, I thought, you know, I should probably have a book behind my name. And so I wrote a book based on what I saw over these 20 years of interviewing thousands of people at the very top of their game who were successful but not happy and understanding what was getting in between and what was getting in their way. Mm -hmm. Now, before I get to the book, I just a little curious about how did you upend the industry in executive church search? How did you change the model? What did you change? So when I was in college, I took a class by Sarah Weddington, who was the woman who argued Roe v. Wade in front of the Supreme court when she was 27 years old. And Sarah said, look, I, I was working in, I was working in, in, public, uh, uh, in, in public law because nobody in Texas was hiring lady lawyers in the 1970s, and Jane Roe walked into my office, and I got the case, not because I was the best, not because I was the most resourced, not because I knew the most people, not because I was the most experienced, but because I was the most proximate. And so I realized, what did I have? I had my brain, and I could learn every single rule about how the game was played. And because I did that, I was able to dance circles around all of those good old boys and their good old-fashioned cowboy boots all the way to the Supreme Court. 
and I learned in that moment that you have to figure out how the how the rules how the, how the how the game was played. And so when I didn't when I felt like the company was profits first, client mission second, and I felt like they could both they could both exist equally, I figured out how the game was being played. I said, why do we charge one third first year's cash compensation to our clients? And what I found out was it was completely arbitrary. There was no reason whatsoever. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. If every search is 200 to 400 hours and searches are broken down through stages of discovery, learning the organization, who they are, where they're going, what kind of person's going to get them there, and then doing the research into where that person might be, doing the, the, the cold calling, the interviewing, the, 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 um, the reference checks, the, you know, all the in-depth mm-hmm. work that an executive search firm does, some clients are going to need all of that. Some clients are going to need some of that. And for some clients, the search is going to be much easier than for others. So why are we charging them one third based on where, you know, what what industry they're in or what geographic uh, location they're in? It just doesn't make any sense. And also internally, our team was incentivized to spend more time on the, the fat, cushy work and less time on the ones that were really hard. And I thought the ones that were really hard, I think it's Frankly, it's harder to find a, a, a head of development of fundraising for a local domestic violence shelter than it is to find a chief strategy officer for an international foundation. And I just felt like we should even the playing field a little bit. And so what we did is we took all of the work and we said, based on the person internally who has to do the work and how complex it is, we're going to charge this much for an hourly rate. And we built bespoke budget models so that our clients could hire us to do all of the work to do some of the work or to do a model in between where we taught them how to do it so that the, the capacity stayed with them in-house. And that's how we built our firm. Mm. Now, um, just so that everybody here, can, you can do a shout out to your uh, colleagues who bought your firm. What's the name of it? It's the Nonprofit Professionals Advisory Group, NPAG, and it's at nonprofitprofessionals.com. And I thank you. I appreciate you doing that because that is not something most podcasters do. But I will tell you, they are the best team in executive search. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm just curious about it. It just happens my daughter's in that space right now as a newly graduated individual. Very similar sort of story to you. So curiosity, and we also serve uh, people who do search and placement with our tools and assessments. So I'm always curious about what people are doing that's different. So when we think about, and thank you, uh, when we think about limitless, and you have something that's in your bio about, you know, success doesn't equal happiness and that you, you slipped in that little statement that I noticed these people were successful, but they weren't happy. Explain that, please. So we spend a lot of time pursuing checkboxes on everyone else's path to everyone else's version of success. And we turn around one day and we say, okay, I built a life which on paper looks right. And on paper looks like I should be happy, but I'm not. And why is that? And it's because we spend so much time pursuing everyone else's idea of what success should be that we lose ourselves in that. We're limited by everyone else's definitions. And I learned that in order for your life to actually feel right for you, it actually has to be right for you. So, for example, when we're in high school or college, we're told to pick a major, pick a trade, pick a path, and pick a job. And, and we're given this list of, of check boxes, right? Um, the mission of the organization, the prestige of the brand, the, the inspiration of the leadership, the um, new skills that you might acquire, the flexibility, geography, and of course, money, right? We're given a whole list of things. And for each of us, those things will matter differently. So, um, 
let's take money, for example. If you're the kind of person who wants to uh, take take long weekends every, you know, long weekends once a month and go to, you know, fancy European cities and wake up in four-star hotels with room service breakfast, that's not going to take a lot of time, but it's going to take a lot of money. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who wants to have that breakfast, you want to make your eggs over the campfire when you're looking out over the lake in the middle of some room, remote national park, that's not going to take a lot of money, but it's going to take a lot of time. So if we look at this checklist, and this checklist says higher salaries every, you know, get a, a raise every year, make more and more and more and more money, that on paper looks like it should make you happy, but it might not if it doesn't have any meaning for you. And so I looked at this list of check boxes that I would use when I would call people to recruit them. And I'd say, okay, they're interested that the salary is higher than the one they have right now. Check. That works. But if it turns out that what they're interested in is actually they've got two kids that are finishing college and they don't have, you know, their, their income doesn't need to be quite as high anymore and they're, you know, empty nesters and they finished paying off the house or whatever, then the money doesn't necessarily mean as much if they want to spend a lot of time now visiting young grandkids. Maybe, they, maybe this person doesn't want a job with more money, but he wants a job with more vacation time. So, we, you know, the, this question of why are we listening to these external definitions of leaning in and being the biggest and the fastest and the most expedient path to the corner office as the only definition of success, and then knowing that when we get to the top, turning around and saying, well, the top of what? Right? It doesn't make any sense. So the idea behind the book Limitless, ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life, is that we have to start by ignoring everybody else and their definition of success and determining what we want and what's going to bring us meaning and leaning into that instead. Mm, couldn't agree more. You know, one of the quotes in one of my books, uh, Laura, just to support you, is that this idea that ambition, ambition is, is connected to being upwardly mobile is a false assumption. So ambition can be, I want to stay in this space. And um, when I did my MBA research, just for your own TEDx talk in the future, is satisfaction went down as people were promoted for the exact reason that you had talked about. They hadn't really considered about extra responsibility, 60 hours a week instead of 45 and all the things that went with that. So thank you for that. What was yeah, I think, that, Go ahead. I think that's absolutely true. And, and I would say that ambition for ambition's sake is why we have a problem with ambition. You know, we, we feel like we're not allowed to be ambitious because we think ambition is only bigger, better, faster, more putting me mm. ahead. But I tell people, and especially women who have, you know, God forbid, she's so ambitious, right? Like women get a bad rap about being ambitious, that if having more money or more foundation or more title or more sway, more power, more influence allows you to show up better for the people you love and the causes you care about, it's actually not your ambition. It's your responsibility. And that's different than getting to a bigger place just because you want more. It's you're getting to a bigger place because you want to have, you want to give more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you also talk about it's time to say screw the Joneses. Is that linked to what we're talking about here? It's linked in some way, but it's mostly, you know, we spend a ton of time looking at everybody else's social media and everybody else's idea. Look, if I were to say to you, you need to have the right house and the right spouse and the right kids and put them in the right programs and drive the right car to the right job where you make the right salary, you may say, you're going to say, oh, okay, that's a lot of stuff I have to do. And you may look at the Joneses, you know, those perfect people with their perfect profiles and the perfect beach sunset photos across Instagram and Facebook, you know, them, we all have them. Maybe some of the Joneses care about some of those things and some of the other Joneses care about others of them. But if you listen to all the Joneses, then suddenly you're caring about all of it. 
And that's impossible, right? We cannot be that person. That's just that, that we can't judge our, our bloopers by everyone else's highlight reels without feeling like a failure. So I say, screw them. Stop worrying about their highlight reels. Stop worrying about their perfectly curated life and figure out what matters to you. Mm. What, were, what are a couple other sort of secrets or insights that you captured that you share in your book, Limitless? Well, I do believe that your fourth grade teacher was probably wrong about you, right? That fourth grade teacher who, who told me I'd be a lawyer, right? Those, those, mm. those early teachers, they, they, they gave you these ideas based on really not much of a crystal ball or a Ouija board, but just like a passing anecdotal, you know, flight of fancy. And I, we, we took them to be definitional in such a way that we now say, well, it's sunk cost fallacy, right? I've already paid all this money. I've already done the, the graduate degree. I've already started this down this path. I have to stay here. Well, you don't have to stay there. That's mm-hmm. not definitional to who you are. At every age and at every life stage, we are going to change and we're going to grow. I did a podcast a couple months ago where I got, the host asked me what advice I would give to my 20-year-old self. And I said, wait, my 20-year-old self? What advice would I give my 20-year-old self on a podcast that's being recorded over the internet to be listened to on a cell phone? Okay, none of those things existed when I was 20. So even if somebody early on in your life told you who you you were going to be and you started down that path, and even if you knew who you were back before you had a frontal lobe, you know, to actually make good decisions – the world around us continues to change. So we have to allow ourselves at every age and at every, life, at every life stage to reassess and do a new inventory and say, who do I want to be now? And give ourselves mm-hmm. the, the grace to know that change is okay. Because, you know, as you've seen, as your daughter's seeing, as I saw in 20 years of executive search, it wasn't the straight line stories that were interesting. None of the people that you interview on your show say, well, I graduated with this degree and I did that for 25 years. Thank you. End of, end of this segment. Next. It's the U-turns and the left turns and the right turns that were the most, in fact, were the only interesting stories. And most people, Laura, just learn to embrace it as part of the journey. Just, okay, this is what occurred. This is what happened. Now what? What am I going to do about it? And to be proactive with it. So I appreciate that. Now, because we failure have, isn't finale, right? Failure is fulcrum. Yeah. And I think once we embrace that, we are not going to die if something doesn't work out, mm. but we're going to learn from it. That's great. Well, I grew up on the dairy farm. I'm the eldest, um, a third generation. And so th- there was a little stress that happened to the family when I decided that I wasn't going to be, quote unquote, a dairy farmer. Because what yeah. the parents say, I did all of this for you, right? So, I mean, that's one of the things that we teach in our purpose work is to to choose your own path. And what does that mean? A lot of times people have opinions. Very few people have wisdom. So (laughs) you can quote me on that. It's very true. And of course, now with social media, you're, you're talking about an industry that's changed. Now, this is my 30th year. I got it. Like you said, you were talking earlier. There was no Internet. So I was commuting. We were doing some work with a company back east. I'm on the West Coast, and we commuted for a year every week because we actually didn't have email. So that that concept about how you do things. Here we are. I'm in my home office recording. You're on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast, and we're doing a podcast. Who thought that even would happen 20 years ago? It's incredible, isn't it? it's, It's amazing. It's amazing. And, of course, I'm a podcast freak in terms of consuming podcasts and on your phone. And so you adapt to be able to say, okay, this is how people want to learn. Now uh, we have about three or four minutes left. Uh, Before we go, 
I want to make sure that people know how to get a hold of you and find out about you. And maybe they're going to book you as a speaker or find out more about you, Laura, or get your book. So there's a couple ways to find me. Uh, the first is if people are listening and they're like, yeah, this sounds really interesting. I want to be Limitless. They can go to LimitlessAssessment.com um, where it's about a 15-minute quiz, about 60 questions, which are kind of intense. So take 15 minutes and really give that gift to yourself to see you know, how much calling do you have in your life, how much connection, how much contribution, how much control. How do you find what's getting in your way and where you're stuck? And the, at the end of the quiz, you'll get a, a, a little radar chart that'll show you what you have and what you want and how to get a little bit more of the things that you want that you want more of. So that's at LimitlessAssessment.com. And then all my good friends call me LGO. So on all the socials, I'm at HeyLGO. And my website is HeyLGO.com. The book is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and wherever fine books are sold. Of course. So when we're departing and we're thinking about, okay, uh, you, the other podcast host asked you about what would you give your 20-year-old self. I'll ask you a different question is, what are the top, what we, maybe what you haven't shared yet, what would be two or three just gems that you would like to share with the listeners as a departing thought of wisdom from you? Uh, well, I would say I would go to my, 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 one of my all-time favorite heroes and one of my all-time favorite quotes and Eleanor Roosevelt. And I would say we would all worry a whole lot less what other people thought of us if we realized how little they did. Mm. And I say that because I want people to make changes. I want them to get uncomfortable. I want them to do things that they've, I want them to become the person they always knew that they could be. And sometimes that takes telling your dairy farmer parents, you're not going to be a dairy farmer, right? Sometimes that, that, that tell that takes telling people that you want to go and pursue some dream that seems scary and crazy and, 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 and inane, but that's mm -hmm. okay because they're going to look at you and they're going to say, what? That's terrifying. Don't do that. And so I would say, number one, they're going to forget about it tomorrow. And then the second gem is most people will give you advice based on listening to your idea through the lens of their own anxiety, their own ambition, their own neuroses, their own excitement, their own depression, their own cage, their own foundation, wherever it is they're coming from. And so you have to decide what's right for you. And you can opinion shop if you want, but I would data point shop instead. If you mm -hmm. hear from people what the possible pitfalls are, what the possible you know um, opportunities might be, and then go from there. But don't let them tell you what you can do and what you should do and what you must do and what you need to do, or my very favorite, what you can't possibly do, because you know that inside of you, you've got multitudes and there's more mm -hmm. in there than you believe. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Laura, for joining us and hanging out with us today. Thank you, Ken. It's been great fun. Well, SOS listeners, you've been listening to Laura Gasner Otting. And she has the book Limitless. So go to her site and go online and go to Amazon and get it and find out more about how her insights and wisdom could serve you, could help you. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what we're doing, just please share, pass it on, let other people know about the secrets of success. Thank you for listening. I'm your host. Dr. Ken Keyes. 
thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.